This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm here today with my co-host Ho Wen Lee. Hello. Today we're going to be breaking down the Booker Prize shortlist for you. It's one of the most prestigious prizes, literary prizes in the world. And this year it's a list of heavyweights, literally in the case of one of the books. <laughs> 1,000 page long yes. novel. So we're referring to Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman, which is up against the following books. The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, Keyshot by Salman Rushdie, 10 minutes 38 seconds in This Strange World by Elia Shafak, an Orchestra of Minorities by Chigozi Obioma, and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. So where else to start but the biggest <laughs> book in terms of hype on the list? Yes. So that's definitely uh, Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. Which was launched under the cover of Great Secrecy. Yes, so I had to actually pick up this book at midnight on the 10th of September. I was not allowed to touch it before then and had to read it overnight. So that was very exciting for me. Uh, I loved it. I don't know if you do, Wenli, but um, I think it's a very worthy successor to The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which was written, uh, which was published in 1985. And we've all been kind of waiting to see where that particular cliffhanger went um, until now. And so now we, I guess we sort of find out. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's a worthy successor. It's, it's, brilliantly written. I mean, you've got a characteristically um, tight, sparse writing, and it's so clever, as well as so much wordplay in it. Yeah, so <laughs> from the very first line, so this is the very first line of the book. Only dead people are allowed to have statues, but I have been given one while still alive. Already, I am petrified. <laughs> so when I saw that, I was like, yes, <laughs> she is back, you know. Um, the the Testaments picks up from The Handmaid's Tale in that it uh, is told by three women, some of which, um, one of which you have met, one of them you've met before, that's Aunt Lydia. So she's the sort of the, one of the villains in the original Handmaid's Tale. She's this woman who tortures Offred, and she's the one of the administrators behind the regime of terror that um, suppresses Gilead's woman, women. So you get this really interesting insight into Aunt Lydia's life. And for that I think that was what really made the book for me that um, you got she's such a f- actually dryly funny woman yeah there's a lot of humor in, in, in the sequel that there was in the original yeah so you see how Aunt Lydia became the woman that she is you know today that she was actually this older woman who was a family court judge and she had them really a lot to lose when Gilead rose and uh, she is not a believer she's a survivor and at one point, I think just this part where she just sort of addresses the reader directly and she's like, uh, well, you know, you're probably a young woman. You're, you know, in your comfortable life somewhere in the distant future painting your nails. And you're thinking, how could I have done all these things that I've done? And, you know, but you've never had to do this kind of thing. You've never had to make that choice. Yeah. For me, the thing about the Testaments that I found, I mean, it's still a brilliantly written book, but I felt that at times it felt a bit more like a, a well-written thriller than, you know, this powerful, yes. trenchant critique of um, social systems, which the first book did very well. So, and, and, that's, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I felt that in a way it was a bit too predictable and a bit too neat in how she tried to conclude the story. Yeah, it's more, way more hopeful, I think, than The Handmaid's Tale. So there are three women who give testaments. The other two are young teenage girls. And one of them grew up in Gilead 
and uh, the other was grew up in Canada, Canada across the border. <laughs> and anyone who's read The Handmaid's Tale will kind of figure out who these girls are before long. But um, so, but they are. So I think their part was perhaps a little weaker than Aunt Lydia's in that it was a bit teenagery and a bit. It's almost uh, like she's parodying the the conventions of Gilead. Yeah. Society. Though it's quite interesting to see how uh, one of Agnes Jemima, the one who grows up in Gilead, how what it's like to live in a society where you're just sort of being raised as a child bride. How does how do you get a high school high school drama, you know, like that? Yeah. So uh loved the testaments. Don't know if it's gonna win, actually. I don't think so. You don't think yeah. so? Well, the people who um, publish the testaments would probably beg to differ, <laughs> since they leaked they leaked covers with the the winner sticker already prepared on it. Mm. But at, well, we have to remember that The Handmaid's Tale didn't win either when uh, it was shortlisted uh, when it came out. So the book that Atwood has won for is The Blind Assassin, and that's a very different book. But I think there's a difference between an iconic book. And a book that wins literary prizes, you know, they're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the other heavyweight on this on this shortlist is Salman Rushdie, two-time Best of the Booker winner for yes, Midnight's and This Children. is his fourteenth novel, so he's been quite prolific. And well, Salman Rushdie is obviously a literary heavyweight. Yeah, um, it's it's pronounced Kishot, but you can also pronounce it Kishote. It's obviously a reference to Don Quixote, mm-hmm. um, and. Essentially, it's it's a story of a TV of a TV adult pharmaceutical salesman who sees the love of his life, or a woman whom he thinks could be the love of his life, on TV, and decides that he wants to pursue her. So he does. So he he goes on this long um, picaresque um, mission, you know, brimming with naivete, and yeah, he goes on a quest to seek her her love. And along the way, he kind of wishes upon a star and uh, magics uh, a boy into being, a son into being. Um, oh, okay. So uh, yeah, who becomes kind of like the Pinocchio to his Geppetto. So it's 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 obviously very you know very it's supposed to be funny, comical, picaresque, um, and it's 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 got this mishmash of different cultural references. So you've got references to Disney, to Gattaca, and so on, and, and TV talk shows as well. Yeah, and at the same time, it's also quite metafictional. So you've got the fictional author, the ostensible fictional author of the book, um, a man called Sam Duchamp who bears some similarities, I think, to Rushdie himself. So it's a very inward-facing, almost involuted kind of novel. Do you think that it should have been on the shortlist? I can see why they would put it on the shortlist, but I don't think it's going to win. Okay. It sounds very... uh, It sounds like it has a lot in common with what he's been writing recently and that he might be doing... Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been accused of repeating, of plagiarizing himself, right? He's he's become almost a parody of himself in... In, in recent years. Yeah, but I think insofar as the book tries to contain so many you know, cultural references, it kind of reminds me of one of the books we're coming to later, um, The Elman. I mean, the sense that I see it as a kind of counterpoint to what Elman is trying to do. Their, um, their capacity for so many you know, allusions to bits of culture and daily life, um, I, I think there is a sense of affinity to be found between the two, but obviously the similarities stop there. Okay, so another major writer... Another major name that's on the list is Elif Shafak. She's um, a Turkish writer, possibly the best-selling female writer in Turkey. Uh, even though she doesn't actually live there anymore, she's living in London. She's in self-imposed exile because she's being investigated for crimes of obscenity in her novels. Uh, what crimes of obscenity? 
well. Um, she has been very. She's very vocal about um, issues like sexual abuse, trauma. It's not exactly. She was once charged for crimes against Turkishness for her mm. novel, The Bastard of Istanbul. She was acquitted, but um, it was, uh, I think, a really big uh, trial for her, a really big ordeal. And uh, she's concerned that if she goes back to Turkey, now she'll be arrested. Anyway, uh, her book is 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world. And it's about the last 10 minutes and 38 seconds of a sex worker's life. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read a bit of the book for you. Her name was Layla, Tequila Layla, as she was known to her friends and her clients. Tequila Layla, as she was called at home and at work, in that rosewood-colored house on a cobblestone cul-de-sac down by the wharf, nestled between a church and a synagogue, among lamp shops and kebab shops, the street that harbored the oldest licensed brothels in Istanbul. Still, if she were to hear you put it like that, she might take offense and playfully hurl a shoe, one of her high-heeled stilettos. Is, darling, not was. My name is Tequila Layla. Never in a thousand years would she agree to be spoken of in the past tense. The very thought of it would make her feel small and defeated, and the last thing she wanted in this world was to feel that way. No, she would insist on the present tense, even though she now realized with a sinking feeling that her heart had just stopped beating and her breathing had abruptly ceased, and whichever way she looked at her situation, there was no denying that she was dead. Yes, so it's a quite an interesting conceit. I think the the last remaining moments in which your body is shutting down, and uh, so Shafak has given this to this woman who is lying dead in a bin. Uh, she's been brutally murdered the night before, and uh, it so it just she just skips back through parts of her life. How you know she had a relatively happy childhood in this family, which turned out to be dysfunctional the sexual abuse that she had, that she faced when she was young, uh, how she came to Istanbul, how she became a sex worker. And uh, the whole thing is tied together by scents, by, uh, you know, the scent of cardamom coffee, the scent of lemon uh, tastes as well. And, And she's just, this woman is just trying so hard to cling to life and uh, and to her friends because uh, she has these five friends who are you know everything to her and they're all people in the margins of society there is a there is a, a transgender um, another transgender sex worker there is a s- aging singer with depression and uh, a woman a janitor who is quite short and uh, who was a refugee from another country and they all are people who will mourn her but at the end of the story, they won't be able to collect her corpse because they're not related to her. They're her friends and her actual family have disowned her. Yeah, and uh, so this is a very unusual, in a way for me, uh, unusual book for Shafak. I've never, I've read her other books, but I've sort of struggled to like them all the way through. And I think this is actually the first Elif Shafak book that I've enjoyed throughout. Interesting. Why is it called 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world? Uh, because that's literally the time that uh, she takes to that she takes to die. Ah, I see. Yeah, cuz um I think there are parts of your body where even when you are dying, your body doesn't all of it doesn't die immediately. So you're still shutting down and parts of your brain are still active. Yeah, so it's actually divided into two, into uh, more than one part. So the first part is the 10 minutes and 38 seconds. That's followed by a part called the body, in which her friends try to dispose of the body in a way that they feel that Tequila Leila would have liked. 
Mm. Yeah, so it's about um, it's about marginality. It's about the lot of women in Turkey at this point, which is something that Shafak's been very vocal about. She's always been very vocal about you know the kind of sexual harassment that women face, the kind of sexual abuse, and the silence that they are met with. And uh, so to so I think this is one of her you know better achievements in that sense. Uh, is it going to win? I am not sure, but uh, it's definitely. I think it's worthy of being on the. It's worthy of making the list. Sounds like a provoking read. Yeah. So it's worth mentioning that this year is um, the year when the prize isn't called the Men Booker Prize anymore. It's yes. just called the Booker Prize because the original uh, sponsors Men Group pulled out. Yes. So the next book on the list is Chigozi Obioma's An Orchestra of Minorities. That's his. Um, he's quite a young writer. Isn't he's very he? young. He was born in 1986. Yeah, he's now a professor at a university in the states. But yes, very, um, very impressive indeed. This story is basically the story of a poultry farmer in Nigeria who saves a, a woman from killing herself. So basically, he's he's on the road and he sees a woman standing on a bridge about to hurl herself to her death to the river below. So what he does is he gets out of his van and he throws two of his birds. Into the water, and obviously the poultry they can't fly very well, so they just um, they just fall in. And she changes her mind, and eventually she gets off on her own. So they eventually fall in love. And it turns out that she's the daughter of some really rich man, and obviously her family opposes their union. And meanwhile, as I, as I mentioned, he's a poultry farmer. You know, they come from su- such different social um, social standings, but but yet they they do love each other. So he decides that he needs to better himself. So he enrolls in university in Cyprus, or so he thinks. And he eventually realizes that he has become the victim of of a scam. So he loses a lot of money and somehow ends up in prison and um, his life just unravels. Um, I wouldn't say it's a difficult read, but it deals with heavy topics and, uh, and it's quite tragic. The author was drawing on the storytelling traditions of the Igbo community in Nigeria. And it also kind of draws on this idea of the Odyssey, a man journeying into a, a strange land and then coming back and realizing that things are not quite the same. So, yes, I really appreciated that the way in which it was told as well. And one interesting thing is that the story is told not by the main character himself, the poultry farmer, but it's told from the perspective of his personal guardian, known as a chi. Okay. Yeah, so the sense of distance as well, the sense of being connected to to forces beyond ourselves. So the chi are able to communicate, they're able to, to kind of communicate with other spirits from other people's bodies as well. So they're kind of linked in, they're kind of linked, tied back to this idea of, you know, this idea of a larger universe. Even early on in the novel, there's some allusions to the idea that his fate isn't always, you know, within his control. His chi basically says, in many cycles of existence, I've come to understand that the things that happen to a man have already occurred long before in some subterranean realm, and that nothing in the universe is without precedent. The world spins on the noiseless wheel of an ancient patience by which all things wait, and are made alive by this waiting. The ill luck that has befallen a man has long been waiting for him, in the middle of some road, on a highway, or in some field of battle, biding its time. We definitely recommend this book, but be prepared for rather for tragic tears. Ending. Yes, <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a heavy, tragic shortlist. Uh, well, 
The next book that we're going to go into is actually quite funny. Sometimes that would be Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, and、uh, she's also of Nigerian descent, but she's British. And this is her eighth book. It's her first time on the shortlist. So, with a title like Girl, Woman, Other, you sort of think it's going to be about identity politics. It's going to be very heavy, very preachy. Is but it? It's completely not. It's hilarious. <laughs> I um, of course, parts of it are very sad as well, but I. I was taken aback at how funny this book is. So Everisto is、um, she's sixty. She's、uh, quite a figure in terms of representing the black community in the in Britain in the arts. So she is the founder of Britain's first black women's theatre company called. Theatre of Black Women, and there is a character in there who is、uh, has a very similar backstory. So her name is Aman. She also founds a theatre company, and she's this figure who is on the margins, who's you know sort of prided herself as being on the fringes of things. But then、uh, she, as the book opens, she has been、uh, given her first show at the National Theatre, which she's directing. And so, is she on the fringe? Is she on the mainstream? You know, now that Everesto has made the book a shortlist, one would argue that she is sort of. Made it into mainstream recognition,、uh, but at the same time, it's such a funny, vital book. So it's divided into twelve parts, and each part is、uh, a different character. So they are most of them women. There's one character who is non-binary, and they are most of them black. So I'm going to read one of the one of the parts. So this is Yas, who is Ama's daughter. She's a millennial, and、uh, as a millennial, I quite enjoyed this part. So this is Yas having a conversation with Courtney, who is her schoolmate and who is white. People won't see you as just another woman anymore, but as a white woman who hangs with brownies, and you'll lose a bit of your privilege. You should still check it, though. Have you heard of the expression "check your privilege, babe"? Courtney replied that seeing as Yas is a daughter of a professor and a very well-known theatre director, she's hardly underprivileged. Herself, whereas she, Courtney, comes from a really poor community where it's normal to be working in a factory at sixteen and have your first child as a single mother at seventeen, and that her father's farm is effectively owned by the bank. Yes, but I'm black, Courts, which makes me even more oppressed than anyone who isn't, except Waris, who is the most oppressed of all of them. Though don't tell her that. In five categories: black, Muslim, female, poor, hijabed. She's the only one that Yas can't tell to check her privilege. Courtney replied that Roxanne Gay warned against the idea of playing privilege Olympics and wrote in Bad Feminist that privilege is relative and contextual. And I agree. Yes, I mean, where does it all end? Is Obama less privileged than the white hillbilly growing up in the trailer park of a junkie single mother and a jailbird father? Is a severely disabled person more privileged than a Syrian asylum seeker who's been tortured? Roxanne argues that we have to find a new discourse for discussing inequality. Yas doesn't know what to say. When did Court read Roxanne Gay? Who's amazing? Was this a student outwitting the master moment? Hashtag white girl trumps black girl. Very millennial. Whatever millennial means. Yeah, but not all the books are like that. All the characters are very different. So there's、uh, characters who are. Who are ninety years old? But yes, is one of the youngest. But then the characters who are middle-aged, characters who are mothers, characters who are you know poor, characters who work in a financial, who are financially successful, and characters from Nigeria who are South Asian backgrounds. It's really fascinating. And、um, but the tone that、uh, Everisto achieves throughout is you know one of you know great, great lightness, even in some of the really horrible parts because it does deal with trauma and sexual abuse. But it's a、uh, it's not. So much representative as diverse 
And I think because there is this line between diversity and representation, people tend to assume that representation means you represent we have one thing and it represents everything, you know. But I think what she's celebrating here is diversity, is that there cannot never be a single thing that represents everything. Very topical book for all times. So on to the final book on the list, um, Duck's New Report by Lucy Ellman. Olivia, what did you think of this 1,000-page long book? Okay, so I've got to say that I have not finished this book. I'm about halfway through. And the reason why I haven't finished it is because of the way I have decided to read it. Um, it's a single... Most of the book is a stream of consciousness. It's just this one woman who's a housewife in Ohio, and she's thinking as she's making pies, as she's driving, as she's doing her various things. But most of it is this stream of consciousness. And that makes it very, very difficult to read. And it's not just stream of consciousness. It's There aren't many sentences. Uh, there are very there are some very long sentences which stretch on for pages and pages yes, and pages. Yes, there's this one, one sentence that is just the, this woman thinking. And it's not even... Because you know the way that you think is not uh, linear. You are thinking about things and then there are parts of your brain that has sort of hooked on to previous things that you've thought. And so you're thinking about those things too, but then you're thinking about the new things. Exactly. So it's stream of consciousness, but not as fluid as that name suggests. It's actually, it's able to incorporate distraction. And we're distracted from distraction by distraction. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite relatable because I mean, given how easily distracted we are in the age of social media, with so many tabs on our laptops, the mm-hmm. sense of flitting back and forth. And even when you're just thinking to yourself, um, some, a new thought pops into your head. Yes, but why? Why does this novel need to be so long? I guess you know you have to, you have to read it to find out. So a lot of it have com- a lot of people have compared it to Ulysses, um, which it, James James Joyce's Ulysses, which previously had also a very long sentence that was um, the stream of consciousness of one woman. Another book that many people pretend to have read. Yes, well, um, I don't feel very fondly towards Ulysses, but I will say that once I decided I would read this novel very slowly by reading it out to myself, then I began to enjoy it hugely because it is quite funny. Uh, And it's very readable. It's It's very very long, but very readable. Yeah, so you just have to be really patient and read it out loud to yourself sometimes if that helps. And also I think it helps to have a table because otherwise it's going to hurt your wrist. Yeah, you could just... It could just fall onto you. Um, yeah, and crush your toe. Yeah. I think we need to read a bit of this to give people an idea. So bear in mind that this is not the beginning of the sentence or anywhere near the end of it. I'm just jumping in the middle and of the sentence. And this isn't the extract yet. Yeah. The fact that nothing you do seems innocent anymore. The fact that even baking a pie has many ramifications. The fact that the more you bake, the more you brood. Crooked Creek. The fact that, what was that game where you had to decide on some moral dilemma, stay-at-home mums? The fact that when I vacuum, I wonder if movie stars ever vacuum, or aliens on other planets. The fact that it's pretty unlikely we're the only creatures in the universe bothered by dust after all. The fact that aliens probably think we're real slobs, not to swiffer our moon more. The fact that it probably drives them bananas, having to stare at our dusty old pockmarked little moon for millions and billions of years. Drink to me only. To thine own self be true. The fact that I don't know if sci-fi books ever get into how to clean up on other planets, but I bet microfiber cloths could come in handy. Out there in the cosmos, mean dogs, mad dogs and Englishmen, homemakers, heartbreakers, working mums, young marriage, diseases you've never heard of. The fact that I don't know why you wear a white dress unless you absolutely had to. Interesting. I think it's very interesting how, in a way, she seems to be resisting this idea of, um, this idea that 
people who write about domestic topics are somehow lesser writers. I mean, Anne Tyler has been settled with similar criticisms, right? This idea of being very homespun, very twee. Yes. And and it's interesting how she kind of, this kind of contrast between the interiority of and the domestic setting with this idea of a mountain ally. And yeah. So I, I'm still trying to figure out what the author is trying to get at by, you know, presenting us with two, two streams of thought almost. I will say that I didn't really dig the mountain lion parts. I um, found them actually, even though they were, they had direction and they had punctuation, I was not, you know, they had end stops. But I wasn't, I, I was still drawn back to this other woman. So the mountain lion is an interesting counterpoint, sure. And uh, she represents, she's also a mother. She's looking for her cubs. I thought I was just less engaged with that part. Yeah, I think we're meant to see it in relation to the main body of the story. We could even call it a story. Maybe this idea of this woman trying to, I don't know. I, I guess it just made me think about the fringes between wildness and domesticity and how and the sense of being on the fringes of danger. Because I think in the book, she talks about how um, her mom once saved someone from drowning, which yes, is where the, the, the title. title comes from. And the title is an allusion to Nabokov's Lolita as well. There's this one bit where Humbert Humbert talks about how his mother died and the cause of death was picnic, comma, lightning. So yeah. the sense of being on the fringes of danger, death, and, and obviously the whole idea of the book being this massive litany, this massive list of different things, right? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just staring at one page right now, and already there are references to Vaseline, Q-tips, lyrics, dust, coffee, donuts. So it's it's so all-encompassing. And I think there was, there was this author, Umberto Eco, who wrote this book about the infinity of lists. Mm. And he went on, I think, in a subsequent interview to talk about how lists are kind of a way of, you know, feeling like we will never die because I guess something about mm. the act of list making that makes you feel in control and, and lists can contain multitudes so I don't know maybe maybe, maybe she was gesturing towards that I don't know but it certainly made me think of the well, wider yeah, context I because I actually did uh, manage to interview Lucy Elman and she said when I asked her why is it a thousand pages and she said well, I want it to it to be a blanket, you know, want it to blanket the reader. And if it's less than that, that wouldn't be enough. It would be like a cushion cover, not a blanket. It has to be life-sized. Yeah. And, you know, because maximalist fiction has so far mostly been associated with men, male writers, and largely male th- thinking, like you think of David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest, and mm. James Joyce as well, even though he was writing Molly Bloom, he was still, you know, he's kind of very male. So there's all patience for Infinite Jest, but okay, yeah. But yeah. this is totally different. Yeah, so this is, a, I think this is an incredible response to that, the fact that you can take uh, a woman's inner thoughts and that it's worthy and, you know, it's enough to fill a thousand pages and you guess that there could be probably more, you know, if yes. she hadn't yeah, I had to stop somewhere. Definitely something to be experienced. Yeah, so definitely try it out. It will test you, uh, but definitely try that out. I think it's going to win. Yeah, actually, I do agree with you. I think um, the Booker has tended to reward experimentation in previous years. If you look at George Saunders, um, Lincoln in the Bardo, and Anna Burns Milkman, so mm-hmm. those are two are very exper- experimental books. And uh, they have tended to move away from, uh, you know, bestsellers, things that would, you know, naturally be popular, like uh, Michael Ondaatje or Sally Rooney. So this looks pretty much like you think it's the dark horse, but it could win. Yeah, people have been calling it this giant underdog. But I giant? Think, <laughs> yeah, I don't really think it's an underdog. I think it's it's quite a strong contender, actually. Okay, yeah. Well, on that note, 
we look forward to finding out who the winner is, and we hope that you get to read all of them. <laughs> if you don't, you have another year to finish everything on this list before the new list comes out. Yep. So slowly take your time with Ducks new report, and that's all that we have for you today. Thank you very much. That was an SPH podcast by the Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at the Straits Times and the Business Times online.